Okay, hello everyone, uh, people here in person and people um, who are on the Zoom link uh, and attending remote. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for being here. Uh, my name is Jennifer Clark. I'm a professor of statistics and food science at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Uh, and we are hosting a series of seminars we're calling Plant Genomics Fridays. Um, we'll be hosting them um, for the next uh, seven weeks every Friday from 10 to 11 a.m. Central Time. This is part of an ongoing series. Uh, the first, the first uh, part of this lecture series was hosted by Iowa State University uh, this past summer. This is a continuation of that series. It's also associated with the Midwest Big Data Hub um, and their uh, focus area in digital agriculture. So um, today's uh, speaker will be uh, Professor James Schnabel. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Agronomy and Horticulture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's also a member of the Center for uh, Plant Science Innovation and the Quantitative Life Sciences Initiative. Um, and he is expert in maize genetics, um, functional genomics. And his topic today will be high throughput phenotyping of uh, maize and sorghum from plants to pots to trays. So please help me welcome James. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much for the introduction. It's a great honor to be the person kicking off the UNL uh, leg of the Plant Genomics Friday tour. I've really enjoyed putting it into the Iowa State box. Great, so we'll, we'll try and live up to similar standards. Thanks. That would be. Ah, there we go. So, minimize that window. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> All right. So, my lab actually uh, focuses on two very different aspects. So, when I uh, interviewed you here at University of Nebraska more than three years ago now, uh, time goes fast. I was talking mostly about uh, functional genomics across multiple grad species, being able to merge and share data on genetic variation, gene expression, that sort of thing. Uh, between these species. Uh, since I've gotten here, there's, I've had a major shift in my research program, which I'm very uh, fortunate that both my department and the university has supported, where a lot of my work is now on uh, analyzing hypothetical data and figuring out ways to actually integrate this into the research and workflows. So before I get into that, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I think this, this seminar series is so important, why I'm going to go into uh, enough detail that it's probably going to be boring for the uh, computer scientists in the room. It's probably going to seem uh, uh, overly technical for the, the biologists and geneticists. In the room. And that is uh, the definition of what it means to be a geneticist or a plant breeder. So, um, a while ago, actually before my time, uh, there used to be whole departments of molecular biology. You meet people and they'd say, I'm a molecular biologist, that's my expertise. I make PCR work, I make different enzymatic reactions work. Uh, and you really don't meet those people anymore uh, because this has been sort of consumed into what it means uh, to be a geneticist or a biologist. You just have to be able to do things like uh, make PCRs work. So now geneticists have that toolkit. When I was uh, younger, so a graduate student, undergraduate, they were specialized people called bioinformaticians. And their job was if you got a bunch of sequence data and you had no idea what to do with it, you went and collaborated with a specialized bioinformatics lab and they helped you figure out which genes were expressed, which difference uh, SNPs or polymorphisms were present, that sort of thing. And well, there still are some specialized bioinformaticians when we have new students coming into the, uh, the lab today, or the department today, essentially students are expected to be able to analyze their own uh, high-throughput sequencing data. So the definition of the geneticist is expanding again. And so as you can probably guess, this is the, the last iteration of this that I have on the slide right now. Right now, there are a small number of labs that are considered experts, experts in high throughput phenotyping, the analysis of high throughput phenotyping data. And so other groups say, okay, we want to run an experiment, we'll go collaborate with one of them. They'll analyze the data, they'll tell us what it means, and then we'll go on with our biological uh, uh, research. And the analogy that I'm trying to draw here is that we, we cannot count this going on for another, more than another maybe three to five to six years. Eventually, as biologists, we're going to be expected to be able to analyze our own. Uh, phenotyping data, which is why we need to understand how this um, process works. So, 
is uh, this interest on hydrogen being effective. It's not actually because of any advance technologically in uh, the our ability to phenotype plants. It's actually because of an advance on a different technology. I think this is probably one of the most uh, used slides in my field, which shows the, the decrease in the cost of sequencing over time, which for a long time was uh, increasing much faster than Moore's law would dictate that computer equipment gets much cheaper over time. What uh, we're now in human genes to be resequenced for about a thousand times. The reason that this is driving uh, a lot of investment, a lot of interest in hydrogen phenotyping is that for most uh, both basic and applied plant science questions, we need a mixture of both uh, phenotypic genetic data and phenotypic data to either identify a gene we're interested in or develop new crop varieties that drive different environments or have different yields. Because we need these two things, we have a, an imbalance. So the, the cost and time and money and effort to genotype even large populations have gotten quite small. The cost of phenotyping hasn't gotten any worse, but it's also stayed about the same. In fact, maybe it's gotten a little higher because a lot of the cost of you know, collecting genetic data is labor and uh, minimum wage keeps going up. Graduate students want segments they can actually live on. So over time, phenotyping, if anything, gets a little bit more expensive. Which makes phenotyping the major bottleneck in our ability to do our research to identify genes to release new varieties. And that's a problem. So, uh, okay, so this is again the model method of plant phenotyping. A lot of phenotyping in my field is still, we send people out in the field with rulers and protractors and notebooks, we measure things, and then we come back and we analyze the quality of the data. And in industry, this is limiting because uh, labor is expensive. Uh, in academia, it's limiting because the supply of students that I can send out to the field uh, for a whole summer and the placing sun and the humidity and mud and thunderstorms and still have them come back and say, yeah, I still want to get my PhD. And that's, that's a limited supply, right? I, and it's very hard to grow that supply beyond the, the natural data which are generated. So this is the slide I look at whenever I'm writing a grant or trying to write a paper. I get a little discouraged. You know, why am I doing what I'm doing? This was generated by a couple of my colleagues here at the University of Nebraska a few years ago. And then looking at the rate at which uh, the yields of some of our major crops have gone up over time. And what they found is that for two to three crops that supply more than half of the calories we eat around the world, in a lot of places, yields have stopped going up or that the, the rate of increase has slowed. And that's a problem. We have, we're, we have more people every year. People we have want to eat food like meat, which requires more uh, calories at a, a grain production level. It is a really serious problem. Now, in the short term, what's happened is this has driven the moving more land into agricultural production that was previously grasslands or forests and so forth. Again, land, like graduate students that can send out to be able to do phenotyping, is a limited resource. Now, I'm showing you uh, rice and wheat here. Uh, we don't see as much of this plateau. We still see yields going up. But the way that we're doing that is also a little concerning. So this uh, graph shows the increase in uh, the yield of corn over time. What you see is the corn yields in the U.S. have been going up about two bushels an acre every year for the last uh, half a century. The problem is that in order to get those increases in yield, we're having to spend more and more money every year. These are two different projections that look at uh, slightly different uh, events. Metrics for spending on plant breeding, but in both cases you can see that there's uh, exponential growth in the spending required to get this linear increase uh, in yield. This this clearly is not going to work if we want to be the world and generally have the world be a place we want to live in 40 or 50 years. So the way that really the only solution is to make this elephant lighter. We have to eliminate this bottleneck. And so microphenotyping is not so much any advance in technology, it's any effort we can come up with to try and uh, eliminate, eliminate that bottleneck so that we can get back to, to doing what we want to do and have the society we want to live in. So when people think about microphenotyping, they think about a lot of different technologies. These are a couple of photos from the now. We have the controlled environment systems, we have systems in the field, uh, highly fixed systems, we have bicycles, uh, aerial drones, we'll talk all about those a little bit. Uh, when people think about hydrogen, though, they, they do tend to focus on that, those engineering challenges. And what I would argue is that really we have three major challenges to make hydrogen work. Uh, the first is uh, data acquisition. 
So this is the building and operating room that goes out, collects images, collects different types of sensor data from plants in the field, plants in the greenhouse, individual plants in the field, lots, whole fields. The second challenge is that you have to get all this data, the giant pile of images or numbers. You have to convert that into numbers that you think are related to some sort of plant traits. And this is really a pure science problem. It's the data processing problem. Then, then you get this pile of data on traits that may or may not be informative, may or may not be linked to what you want to study. And you have to actually take that numerical data and find the genetic data, data on treatments, and actually get uh, insights into plant biology. So this is quantitative uh, genetics and also statistics problem. And so one of the, the challenges we face, you know, like we're actually doing a good job of overcoming is that it's very easy to get uh, funding and support for the first problem, but a lot harder to get uh, that same support for the second problem, so even though like they've already bought the high the phenotyping system, why aren't we getting the phenotyping system? And over all three of these challenges, you really do need plant science expertise. You need people who can look and say, uh, you know, are the questions you're addressing, does this make biological sense? Uh, my student Shakai has an example where he found a, a data point where the corn plant was, I think, 21 meters tall. So he, as a biologist, was able to say, you know what, I think that's probably an error. It's not a 21 meter tall corn plant. As computer scientists, maybe someone would not catch that as a mistake. Uh, and I mean, are we actually going in a direction that's going to lead to agronomically relevant uh, problems? There are a lot of really interesting uh, problems, both in data collection and data processing, that I think don't lead back to agronomics. So we have to be conscious of that at all three stages. So let's walk through uh, what my lab and my collaborators are doing in these uh, stages, sort of in order. Uh, this is just another way of showing the same thing. So we're pretty good at knowing how to grow plants. Then we have to collect pictures from those plants, collect the data, then we have to turn those into numbers, and take those numbers, and turn them into pictures. So the first stage of this is growth plant, we have to collect pictures or other data. So I've been very fortunate to be in Nebraska as we've had this large investment in different uh, technological approaches to collecting this data. The first of these is a high-speed greenhouse which came online I think, about a year after I started, and then a year later had an expansion to about 250 plants, 200 plants to about 700. Uh, but uh, many different types of images for these plants about every day or every other day. Uh, the thing that sets this apart from a lot of other facilities in the public sector is that the, the size of the plants we're able to grow. So the total number of limited, we can grow maize. These maize ingrowths maturity, maize hybrids tend to get a little bit uh, too tall even in the growth system. We have rainstorms all the way through their entire life cycle. So we're looking at types of data that have not been collected from this type of system previously for, for big rain crops, uh, like pictures of that. Uh, the second system that has only come online in the last year is a System based on the same technology used for stadium cameras. So if you watch a, a football game and there's the, the view, sort of the sky view, that's uh, one of these uh, large payload systems of cables that's running around over the field. We have a similar uh, system installed out in Nebraska now. We run over a one acre footprint to collect uh, a bunch of different types of data. This is actually relatively modular, so we can put new sensors on the payload platform uh, over time as, as different uh, sensors are developed or different. And become biologically interesting. Now, this one acre footprint, there's been a lot of investment just in the, the footprint itself. So, we have 144 independent irrigation zones. Each of these can have a subsurface irrigation that can be controlled separately. With each zone, we can grow three different two row plots, or you can grow a bigger six row plot. Uh, and so, this summer, my lab collaborated with some other groups. We're growing 180 recently off patent based hybrids on half of this field, collecting a bunch of data, and then these same hybrids. Uh, have been imaged in the greenhouse system. And through collaborations with some other awesome people here at UNO, we also have these in a nearby field that we're applying uh, with drones. So we're able to collect uh, drone level data, uh, stadium cam level data, and greenhouse data all from the, the same lines. And I think with, uh, this is a point I will hammer on over and over again in this talk. One of the things that uh, is real life that we need more of is more different types of data that are layered over the same populations, and ideally, over the exact same plants, uh, same growouts, same populations. So I won't talk too much more about the engineering challenges of phenotyping because in the seminar series, you're going to hear from two other uh, wonderful young faculty at University of Nebraska who are involved in this. Uh, Yuma Gov, who's going to be speaking, I think, next week, that dates right. And so he's been very involved in both the greenhouse system and uh, the ground based phenotyping 
fields that you develop in high school systems and the, uh, uh, the scenario of state of care system. And also, uh, Ian Shi, who's uh, an expert on, on drone phenotyping, I think is only a year and a year and a half or so, but she's been really wonderful and uh, we've been working with her a lot flying uh, field level data to compute drones and scale to much larger areas than we're ever going to be able to cover with uh, our state of care system. system. So, engineering challenge next is this computer science challenge. So, you have a bunch of pictures. That doesn't provide anything that is actionable to a biologist or a geneticist. We have to turn pictures into some sort of numbers that describe uh, something about the lines. So, let's uh, focus on the greenhouse system for now and show you the data we get off of the system. So, this is the data from one plant to one part of my unit on Monday. Do we actually have a year developing there? So, I can't, I can't see you. Yeah, we do have a capsule showing up. So we have the same plant image from five different angles of the RGB to uh, be able to capture the architecture of the leaves as sometimes leaves will cross over in an individual view. We have a hyperspectral data view. So this captures uh, shorter 43 separate wavelengths of the, the plant. Uh, and it's quite useful for reconstructing different things about the chemical composition of the plant. Uh, starting with just water content, but also looking at nutrients, uh, different uh, composition issues. I'll talk a little bit more about that. And also a fluorescence uh, thermal IR cameras, which I will not be talking about today. We also get this data off the system. So the first thing you do when you get this data is you say, oh, I, I want to look at this plant over time. Uh, so this is, you know, this looks like this is working properly. And soon you're seeing uh, this one plant grow over a 30-day cycle uh, image every day. This looks really nice. I put this on Twitter. Uh, I did put this on Twitter. Uh, it's great for outreach and saying, you know, look at what I'm doing. It's hard to turn this into biological insight, though, uh, other than, you know, aesthetic judgments of, okay, this one plant looks a little nicer than another. Yeah, I made a different one plant. Uh, so what we want is to turn uh, this image of a plant into a set of traits that are going to be of uh, interest to geneticists and readers. Uh, and this is the step where uh, traditionally uh, a miracle occurs. So we have the image data and then Something happens, and then suddenly we have biological insight. Uh, so when I first started this project, I think I probably fell into the same category. I ran a bunch of plants on the system. I got the data, and then that was. And it turns out that now what is, yeah. So if you spend a lot of money to generate a very expensive data set, people are going to expect insight right away. So the first thing I wish I'd known before I got involved in economics is don't wait until you have your really expensive data set to start building these, these analysis algorithms and notice who's going to be out there. Uh, one way to do that is to generate cheap data sets that are going to have a lot of the same characteristics as the expensive data sets, which you can then use to, to learn in unsuspecting computer scientists and convince them to, to work that you have an interesting research problem. Uh, so in this case, let me just talk about that. So, uh, the first of these, so the, as I mentioned with the, the greenhouse system, the plant comes in, we photograph the plant from different angles. Uh, surprisingly expensive to do. Uh, on the on my right, I guess your left, uh, you can see our, our very low tech, low throughput uh, in the system. We have this wonderful plant here on the car behind it. There's the, the white background. Uh, that student standing by the door in Chicago is a member of my lab. He comes in and rotates the plant by a set number of angles. And then two guys. Plant and take a photo of the plant. Uh, the resulting data has essentially all the same characteristics of the plant data we got off of the greenhouse based system, and people are able to start and uh, develop the system to analyze that data right away. Uh, and on my left or right, we have just a, a, a top down camera system with a similar type of tracking growth of these plants over time. Now, cheap data sets do not mean small data sets. For example, with this camera system, we end up taking six photos a minute for 14 days, which Produce 1.2 terabytes of data, uh, which is a potential uh, overkill, but it's, it's easier to do sampling and then uh, go back and figure out how often you actually need to take the photos. So that's the greenhouse. Uh, similarly, in the field, uh, for the CDKB weekend online, I've been able to, to talk with you uh, and say, you know, this is the type of data we are expecting to see. He said, Oh, I already have this wonderful system I, I built when I first got to the university based on a bicycle, two bicycles. I think he bought them from the University Surplus. They've been seized. Somebody left them on a bicycle rack over the summer. Uh, they take, take it out and run it through the field and collect a 
bunch of image data uh, of our, our plans for stages of development. As you can see for design, there is a, a hype limit, so we're not able to run that all the way through maturity, but we are able to capture the early stages uh, of development in a way uh, very similar to what we get from the media camera system online. And we're able to start working um, on how to extract different traits from that data for the data camera system. So, how do we actually analyze the data? The first step is to just find the plant. Uh, in the greenhouse, this is a lot easier than any of those plants without a plant in them. So, we just compare these two images and say what is different. Uh, the computer is very good at that as long as the images are otherwise completely identical. Say, ah, this is a plant. You want to describe something about the plant. So, the, the easy things are the area of the plant, uh, the height and width of the plant, that sort of thing. Uh, and from this, we can compare to ground uh, truth data. We can measure the height of the plant with a ruler or meter stick. Biomass is measured uh, destructively. How good are our predictions of the, the space we would measure um, conventionally with this height uh, of this one? Uh, as you can see, our estimates of plant height are essentially identical to what you would measure uh, with a meter stick. Unfortunately, plant height is not something that is particular, particular for you, as long as you're in the, the right window. You don't want really short plants, you don't want really tall plants. The difference between a 1.7 meter corn plant and a 1.8 meter corn plant probably is not going to drive major differences in the old farmer adoption. Biomass is a bit more interesting because this can uh, be a proxy for how well the plant is using resources and responding to stress. We have a relatively good estimate. This is an R, not R squared value, so if you want to give you 80% of the variation of biomass. From our image analysis metrics. Um, and this has been widely used in, in many different uh, publications that are trying to estimate biomass accelerator. So I think the, the contribution that we were able to make, though, was to look at the error here and say, is this random error or is this systematic error? Random error is fine. I can, I can just run more farm plants and get a, a very good accuracy, better accuracy estimate. If it's systematic error, I've got a problem because additional references aren't going to let me uh, get close to the biological truth. So I asked this question on to Chikai. Uh, he said, okay, well, I'll have a look at that. Two days later, he came back with the start and said, you know what? Uh, a lot of the error in biomass is systematic, it's heritable. So if we look at the same hybrids, uh, they tend to either be underestimated or overestimated uh, relative to the ground truth biomass measurements. So this is a problem uh, because what it means is if we, we were doing a mapping for biomass, uh, we would be not mapping just for biomass, we'd also be mapping for whatever uh, characteristics cause certain plants to be over or underestimated in terms of the biomass. Um, and I think there are probably are ways to correct this using more complex algorithms, or we can just decide that that's the price of doing business, but it's important to be aware of it. So that, that would, felt good. I was able to make a contribution as a geneticist and not just uh, trying to do uh, image analysis. Uh, so another example of this is the, the number of leaves of corn plants. So this is a collaboration uh, with some folks in computer science. I want to specifically thank uh, Trinity Bachem, uh, who's a now graduated master's student who did most of the work I'm presenting right here. So we gave him these uh, corn plant images. He was able to very easily segment them and train the algorithm to find, okay, where are the leaves of the corn plant? Now, if you're somebody who is uh, familiar with the uh, way a plant grows and develops, You'll notice something is, is very wrong with this, which is that the, the leaves have been numbered incorrectly. So, um, a lot of leaf one, leaf two, you should have leaf three, but it's four, then you should have four, but it's five. And he said, you know, what's going on here? He said, oh, well, I, I never did based on their length. I figured that's, that's a good trait. It, you can certainly see how uh, it you know, makes sense to some. Of course, the length changes over time, and that's also not how they develop. Uh, so, we have to have some discussions about this uh, and get the uh, right. And this turns out to be a surprisingly complex problem uh, because we're, we're looking at the same plant uh, image every day over a long time series. And one of the things that you'll be familiar with if you've worked with plants is that over time leaves die. So this is day 21 and 22 of the experiment. The plant looks very similar. Leaf one is still there on day 21, and day 22 is gone. That doesn't mean that leaf two gets promoted to leaf one. And so uh, after we had some discussions with Trinity, we were able to sit down and come up with a relatively complex algorithm that was able to actually keep the, the numbering the same, even as leaves started dying. Other leaves started growing, as the leaves got longer, as they grouped. 
which allowed us to
Hyperspectral data does come with lots of caveats, and this has been useful to talk to the engineers who know more about this than me. Uh, first, is that we use cross-validation uh, to establish the accuracy of the model, so I can train a model with 80% of the plants, test how well it predicts the other 20%, and repeat that over and over again. Uh, but that only works uh, if the growing conditions are the same, if the light sources are the same, which is a real challenge in the field. And more importantly, uh, and this was again, our contribution, is it only works if the genotypes and development stages are the same. So in a lot of cases, we would, uh, the initial design was to train on one reference genotype, get this wonderful model, we would apply it to lots of other genotypes. Turns out the, the colors of corn plants vary a lot uh, just based on genotypes, so if you train on small subset, you're going to get um, drastic reductions in accuracy if you go to more genotypes, so we just need to build that into our training set populations. That was turning numbers into or photos into numbers. Uh, the final challenge is to uh, take this and, and turn it into biological insight. In order to turn uh, images into biological insight, this is the second thing I wish I'd done before I started working in phenotyping. Uh, it actually means I, I, I've talked about the problem that we spend a lot of time in work just collecting phenotypic data, but it actually Getting the opportunity to spend a lot more time doing the same sort of labor intensive ground truth measurements than we did before. Uh, I'm hoping at some point there's a, a crossover in curves, so it hasn't happened yet. Uh, so, collecting good ground truth data sets are essential for being able to get something biologically meaningful out of traits that are being extracted from uh, images and other sensors. Uh, the corollary of this is that if you're trying to either uh, have collaborators or make sure your data sets are cited, uh, combining image data with ground truth data makes it much more valuable, uh, but also more expensive uh, for you. So there are a couple of ways around this. Uh, we'll talk more about this uh, grant we have from the USDA, which is to actually automate the collection of the ground truth data. So a student in this lab is working on a robot that can reach out, uh, rip a maze leaf, and then collect a lot of measurements about that leaf using the same sensors I send uh, graduate students in the field to make measurements with. Uh, here you can see it's working with the online simulator. Next week for more on that. Uh, the other is to work with uh, either populations or specific rods that are already being phenotyped in lots of different ways. So most of the work that I've done uh, with maize and our different phenotyping uh, systems has used uh, either lines or plots from genomes to field, which is a public-private partnership where large sets of uh, recently off-patented resident hybrids are grown all over the U.S. These lines have been uh, genotyped already, and they're being phenotyped in many different environments. And data on those environments is also being imported. So the data from 2014-2015 uh, is already available online, so if anyone wants to, go and download that. Uh, and then the, there's a rolling release, which 2016 data should come out soon, the 2017 data comes out in about a year, and so on. Um, and if you want to combine that with the phenotypic data, so the first uh, experiment we ran was just with uh, 31 common control grids five reps each in the greenhouse. Uh, that data is available uh, at this DOI, or if you want, you can just go to my lab website. We have a link to that DOI. If you Google uh, Chomble Lab, we are the second hit for Chomble Lab, not the, the first hit. You're the, the good research group too, but doing different things. Uh, that was maze. Uh, in Sorghum, there isn't this sort of large-scale collaboration yet. So the strategy we adopted was to look at what are the populations people use in lots of different papers. We identified the sort of association panel of about 40 lines. Again, it had been genotyped uh, with high density step markers, and there were just lots of published papers where people had scored this for different traits and different environments. Um, so, through a support from the uh, support team and all, I was able to run this whole population uh, through a greenhouse, the greenhouse phenotyping facility here at UNL. And we can uh, both try and identify interesting genes just from our data, but also compare that data back to field data. Traits that only work in greenhouse are probably not going to be that useful in that big challenge of making it all require. Um, just here's a, a bit of the diversity uh, we see in that sort of uh, the greenhouses. It's the same thing. It makes them really happy to walk into greenhouse when we've got plants at this stage. And so, this population is the first one we've grown. We actually have enough diversity. We can start to do GWAS. So we can start getting back to genes, which is you know, what I wanted to do when I started. Uh, but what do you do when your populations aren't big enough to do that yet? Uh, the first thing is just check to make sure 
multiply something. Anyway, uh, so as I mentioned, we collect ground truth data sets to make sure that what we're measuring is useful. It's great if you can talk someone else into collecting those ground truth data sets. So in this case, I was fortunate uh, that with my collaboration with uh, Randy Zimmer, another assistant professor in my department, she's very interested in the development of inflorescence traits and sorting. So she was already growing this population field, storing all the inflorescences, uh, and kindly volunteered her lab to also take all of the chemicals we grew the greenhouse once we were done. We chopped them, we handed them off to her, and they are manually storing all these traits. Um, so we're able to identify the yes, we can identify significant uh, SNPs linked to different traits uh, for variation in water detection. And ultimately, we'll have a wonderful ground truth data set, not just from the same lines, but from the exact same plants for which we have the English data in the greenhouse. All right, here's a question I was getting to, which is uh, you know, it's wonderful looking at machines, but you do you tend to have these intermediate steps, either with cheaper data sets or training population assessments. And what can you actually do? Uh, the first thing you can do is make sure that whatever you're extracting is actually something that is under genetic control. So if you're measuring a trait, it seems really interesting, uh, but you do a, a heritability analysis and you find that there really is, is no genetic control of that trait, it probably is not going to be something that would be useful uh, for providing a lot of biology insight. There may be some exceptions to that in my physiology. Uh, so in this case, we're looking and it says about 140 base hybrids that could be that feature, which lets us calculate broad sense heritability for any particular trait. We can talk to computer scientists and figure out how to extract from the data. Uh, we can see that plant height is under much stronger uh, genetic control than plant width, which I guess makes sense, and plant area is somewhere in between. We can also see that uh, over time the heritability for traits goes up. And Confusing for a little bit, and as I think about it, this starts to make sense because uh, the error in image processing is going to be relatively fixed. Uh, over time, the plant gets bigger, so the actual thing we're measuring gets larger, so the proportion of the measurement that's error goes down. So I hope that makes sense. So by being able to look at larger and larger plants, we're able to get uh, more variable measurements, which let, gives us more power to link it back to genes. Uh, what we want to do. Uh, this also allowed us to look at a comparison between a model that only had the genetic effects and one that looked at variation within the greenhouse. And we saw that actually taking into account position of the greenhouse increased heritability even more, which means that we're seeing environmental variation in the greenhouse, uh, which is not uh, something in my lab. I was fortunate to have collaborator uh, uh, Evo from the statistics department, who also started about the same time as I did. Uh, the wonderful name of this uh, university where they brought this big role of, of young professors all at once because nobody has existing collaborations. It's like the first day of high school. You can you know, reinvent yourself, make new friends, decide to exclude, all that fun stuff. <laughs> so uh, this data was able to show that there really is a, a, a large variations even in our greenhouse facility. And by controlling for these, we can uh, get much better estimates of genetic effects and have stronger power in genes. Uh, the other thing you can do, which I'm, I'm not going to have time to talk about today, which uh, will be another talk, Later in the series, is look at uh, how many plants and how many time points, and whether you do the same time points uh, to design experiments to estimate different sizes of effects. Uh, so, this is a collaboration both you and another uh, young statistician uh, out of Iowa State, uh, uh, and they're looking at ways to estimate the effects of both genotypes and treatments, even if we don't have any overlapping time points between uh, plants and different treatments. Uh, so, we'll get the Interlocked current points. Uh, and this turns out to be a really valuable thing because of an engineering, back to an engineering challenge. Uh, we have the capacity, we're really good at growing lots and lots of plants. Our high phenotyping is actually has a limited throughput potential. So if we can measure some plants on one day and some plants on another day, uh, it allows you to design much larger experiments with more replicas and more genotypes than if you have to measure everything on the same day. Uh, so we'll have a couple of talks on overcoming the statistical challenges analyzing phenotyping uh, data, uh, both by uh, John, who I've had a chance to talk about. There's another uh, recent hire looking a lot of machine learning methods to analyze this data, and another one by Nemo uh, and uh, a little later in the schedule. So the important lessons that I would hope that people will take away from this talk. Uh, if you're interested at any point in doing hyperphenotyping data, or doing hyperphenotyping in your research, 
generate some data now. Doesn't have to be perfect data. It can be somewhat like the data that you're ultimately planning to correct if you will uh, do a big head start analyzing the data. Because there really is a lot of pressure once you have the data sets data set in hand that can turn around rapidly. Uh, realize that in the long term, this is hopefully labor saving. In the short term, it is not. It's going to need a lot more of your time um, than if you had started with genotyping. Remember that there are genetic differences uh, between genotypes. And if you are working with folks who are not plant biologists, you may have to remind them of this a few times. It's just, this is what we're trained for. It's not what they're trained for. It's part of our contribution uh, and collaborations. Uh, and collaborative cross disciplines also remember to discuss. Uh, Expectations for authorship, data sharing, code sharing, uh, early and often. Um, it's been what, a really educational experience to see just how different those expectations can be between fields. Nothing wrong with that, but it's much better to have that discussion at the beginning rather than at the, the end of the collaboration. The other is to remember that, uh, oops, that's the wrong computer. <laughs> ah, remember that correctly managed. Uh, good benefit experiments and, and good grow outs are excellent collaborative aid. These really do need to be multidisciplinary teams. Um, so I'll, I'll share two examples from my own uh, research program. So one is that uh, since I started here, I've been involved in growing these genomes to fields blocks at the University of Nebraska. This has let me build this collaboration uh, with you uh, because we already had plots for collecting browser data, so that people who grow can compare those data sets. Let me build this collaboration with Yvonne, where you had this bicycle system. Already existing, they're collecting graphic data. They run through and collect wonderful vision uh, sensor data for us. Uh, I think that's the reason that I'm growing plots in the Spider Camp facility right now, which is uh, the, the football team camera, because we're already collecting ground truth data from those same genotypes at the same uh, farm facility. Even less that we build collaborations with uh, industry. So, Indigo uh, Ag uh, has worked with us to, to sample microbiomes from the same fields. Uh, similarly, the sort of GWAS panel. This let me build this collaboration with uh, Brandy to look at chemical architecture. Uh, I went to, to Purdue and gave a talk on this data set, which led to two potential collaborations. One to do actual three-dimensional images of the internal structure of chemicals with uh, Ms. Dock. And the second one, uh, Purdue would bring these, these same genotypes in there. They have a lot of data on the stem composition, so it's going to look at how the hyperspectral signals we extract specifically from stems, which you can't really get in a top-down system because the stem is blocked by the panel and the leaves, uh, corresponds to the stem composition, uh, as well as a collaboration with uh, Nebraska Group for Health looking at uh, hyperspectral imaging of seeds on the panel and then the nutritional traits of those seeds. So uh, it, it is a lot of work, but it allows you to, to really make these connections that otherwise you would not be able to make. I'm very fortunate that this work was funded by a lot of different agencies, including NSF, which is covered up by NEPA. Sorry about that. Uh, and it's also, I'm presenting work from a lot of different folks, uh, not just myself, but members of my lab. So, uh, my research group down here, but also the statisticians and engineers and computer scientists who contributed to the research I'm holding today. Uh, with that, I'm kind of a bit early, so hopefully, take some questions. Thank you. Uh, any questions? Sure, James, if you consider looking at uh, one thing that strikes me is this is really good at taking a lot of pictures. Yes. And imaging over time. What about throwing a pathogen or an insect pest in there? I, I would be fascinated to do that. Uh, particularly for the drone-based systems, I think that's easier. For the greenhouse, we, we have to deal with the greenhouse facility and they tend to not like the pathogens that will adapt to the next the next person's environment. Um, but I believe that there's some work funded to do that right now with one of the seed grants. I have to look at who's doing that. Uh, we thought about the possibility of um, also imaging uh, somehow linking the above ground imaging to the low ground, which is a lot more challenging. Uh, <laughs> but I'm thinking of like, is there is there value in doing that? And then, uh, which I think there is, but uh, I'm curious about you know the feasibility of doing that, um, either in the greenhouse yeah. again, or, or the field. Uh, that's a very good question. I, I will say it's been my goal to, to stay away from the as much as possible, uh, just because it, it is so challenging. 
And this is actually something I deal with working with with Maze is people will say, well, Maze is a really simple plant architecture. You should work with something you know, complicated like soybean. Uh, given how hard, I agree, Maze is a much more simple, simple architecture, given how hard it is to extract maize from that. Uh, I don't want to move on to soybean uh, or low ground traits directly. I think one thing that is really interesting is that there are things we can measure above ground that you reflect uh, root traits, megatoxin, and also the collecting of root trait data. Uh, so, one of the collaborations that I had is with a group of engineers in Iowa State. And we're looking at sensors you insert in the stalk of the corn plant that are measuring the amount of nitrate in the stalk, which would reflect the ability of that corn plant to extract nitrate from the soil, given that the soil is equivalent throughout the field. Of course, it isn't, so then we have to do more sampling throughout the field of the soil nitrate. But, so you were you were uh, alluding to that the hypospectral image will get at biochemical traits. Yes. But these are only going to be the traits that are a few cells deep because you're just measuring the reflectance of the plant. Is, is that correct or uh, conceptually yes? Uh, in practice, sometimes hypospectral seems to work like magic. Uh, sometimes it does not. Uh, so in a lot of cases, I think we're actually getting proxy traits. We're not getting the, the actual characteristics itself, which is part of why uh, there's so much variation in how well it works for different genotypes. Okay. So, for example, in, in DuPont's one, uh, he, his group has been able to measure uh, the concentration of uh, a half dozen different uh, micronutrients and nutrients in organisms that shouldn't have any effect uh, themselves on the wavelengths we're looking at, but are changing something about the biochemistry as such. So The, the G to F um, project. Yeah. Every time I think every time you show it, it gets bigger, and there's yes. more there's more involvement in collaborators. Um, are, are there? Do you know of any groups that are doing similar types of experiments uh, in other countries? As far as I know, and this is the pretty much the the first example of this in the, in the public sector. So one of the big driving forces behind this is because if you, once you get in, if you go in the industry. They are doing grows in many different locations, collecting a lot of this data. And so, first of all, we'd like to, the reason they're doing this is because it's really interesting and, and useful, and we'd like to have that data too. But also, we want to make sure our students have access to the, the right types of data sets so they can uh, learn to work with these things and be able to head up an industry. And also, this can stimulate economic development because if I start a new startup, I can try and get some deal with uh, to be able to either collect some data or to. Grow some plants without having to first be at scale of those gender and Monsanto when they really can have plots all over the country. So, from all this phenotyping, I mean, you have lots of different phenotyping activities. Um, and what do you think is the, the at least the most important scientific thing that you learned from doing this process? There's lots of, lots of other lessons, but I mean, in terms of your own like core science, what, what do you think is, is, you know, or just most interesting insight that you've had? That is a really good question. <laughs> um, honestly, I, I don't have a good answer right now. Mm -hmm. I think I will have a good answer in about six months. I have a project I'm on the line. Where we're looking at the overall phenotypic effect of different classes of genes. So we have all the genes in the genome. We have genes that are served between multiple species. We have genes that were identified through quantitative genetics as having phenotypic effects. For example, through uh, GWAS, or it's probably a UGL study where they use gene resolution. So essentially, this is from GWAS studies. We have genes that were identified through poor genetics. I call these the classical genes of maize genetics. Somebody spent five years trying to characterize them. So we know what the have these different classes. We don't know how important each of those are to controlling industry variation across a wide range of traits. So what I'm really excited to do now that we can measure many, many different traits in these plants, we actually have these data sets already from maize to look at the relative contribution of those different types of genes to overall overall nutrient variation across every industry measurement. Uh, nothing online? It's all the chat popping up. No, I don't see it. Okay. This is sort of a technical question. So what's what kind of resolution do you have in the field? Do you have single plant resolution? 
information, right? Uh, so it depends on the, the system that we're using. So with the, the stadium camera, yes, we definitely can see single plants, but we train the computer to distinguish the single plants is the next challenge as we're getting this data coming off uh, this year. I think a lot of the stuff that we've grown is still at the level of the whole plot. Okay. I would love to see that go to single plant. I think that there is a technical challenge. To, well, there are challenges. I don't think there's a technical barrier to doing that. Again, it is uh, first this challenge of orthorectification, which is stitching images together so you actually have the whole field, and then being able to train the computer to separate this plant from the two plants on either side of it. Uh, computers really seem to struggle when things overlap, uh, which is why all the example plants I showed you were ones where the leaves did not overlap. Mm -hmm. We all we obviously have to work with the ones where they do overlap and it's more challenging in the field. It's um, very technical challenging. Yeah. All the plants overlap. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So being, uh, usually when uh, you look at computer science, they do is have to identify the center of the world. They call that a plant and then they draw some barrier around that center and say this is the data from that. So I think it's Achievable. I don't think we have the computer science to work. Now, at least uh, among my collaborative group, I should have thought of earlier that So, um, how would you encourage other investigators and scientists to share their data? This is, this is always a contentious issue, and uh, people have different philosophies on sharing information. Um, so I'm wondering if just from your perspective, what's the um, what's the argument that for, for improved sharing, increased sharing of, of for example, phenotype So I, I would say the um, there are two arguments. One is that uh, as a field we really need to engage more uh, unlinked computer scientists and statisticians. So I have my collaborators, other people with their collaborators, but we really it's a, it's a very small subset of the field. Put out well integrated data sets, I think we, it's a lot more likely that somebody at uh, South Carolina State, I don't actually there South Carolina State, uh, who's a computer scientist, say, oh, you know, this is an interesting data set, they'll just develop something on their own, uh, and then that software comes out and becomes something that can use. So that's the altruistic argument. Uh, the pragmatic argument is to think of these data sets uh, like genomes. So if you publish a genome, Lots of people use it, you have lots of citations. The value of the genome paper uh, declines radically over time. Um, so if you sequence your genome and you publish it right now, you, you get an internal X. If you wait two years, the same genome will be an internal Y. If you wait another two years, the same genome will hopefully get the plus one. <laughs> you know, phenotype, the, the ability to is growing radically. Uh, so if you get the data set out now, even if you don't uh, have a perfect analysis, even if you think there's a lot of other interesting stuff in there that you can mine, give it another three or four years, the rate at which you can mine your data out of the data set is not going to keep up with the uh, inflation of data value over time as data collection increases. So that's the pragmatic argument. Just get them out there, get your citations now, um, while also being an exciting data set. All right, well, if there are no other questions, I, I guess it. we can uh, wrap this up. Great, so thank you very much, James. Thank you to everyone who's uh, connected online, and we'll have our next presentation uh, next Friday uh, the, at the same time, the same channel.